going. All right. So this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week. <clears throat> last week we began a couple of weeks study specifically talking about uh, the Word of God. Uh, last week we were discussing kind of just the question in general, what is the Word of God? Like, or, like when we look at Scripture itself, do we see different like forms of it? We see, you know, like last week we, we spoke about Christ Himself. Um, is presented as being the Word of God that became flesh. We've got the spoken Word of God. We've got the Word of God through the prophets. Um, we kind of worked our way down uh, to uh, Scripture itself, the written Word of God, which is what we have today. Um, it's how we know God. It's how we know who God is, what God has been doing. Uh, so this morning, specifically, we're going to start talking about the canon of Scripture itself. So when I use the that phrase, the canon of Scripture, y'all are probably familiar with it because it's been used. I know I've heard Dustin use it uh, quite often. Um, I would also refer you back to the study that Dustin did on Wednesday night because a lot of this is going to be um, going to be very similar in in that regard. Um, next week we're going to to kind of um, jump from this into the history of how we came to this, and in that, uh, what we're going to do then as well is is that's where it's going to start taking kind of an apologetic lane in this. In this particular area. So today, um, I'm going to be giving. It's, it may feel at times like it's like information overload. That's because there's a lot that I want us to get in, and and I'm going to do my best to not get you glossy-eyed this morning. But but that's a risk that's that's definitely there, uh, just simply because there's going to be so much that we're going to be trying to cram into the amount of time that we have today. But one thing that I would ask you to be doing, kind of. Uh, maybe as a as a means of helping you pay attention as this information is kind of dumped out is is start formulating questions in your own mind regarding this um, regarding this specific topic like I, I want us next week as we start kind of looking at how the church has viewed this from the from the early church down through the ages up to today and how they've answered this question. Um, are, are there are there ways that we can do it that we can answer that question better today, maybe even than they could a hundred, two hundred years ago? Like like what are the tools that we have at our disposal uh, so that we can that we can know for certain that we have the proper canon of scripture? So first, just for any that might not that might not be familiar with that word or that phrase, the canon of scripture. The canon of scripture basically. Is the word that we use when we refer to the the list of the books that are that belong in the Bible itself. So when I say the canon of Scripture, you think these are the books that belong in the Bible. So um, this excludes the uh, the apocrypha or what we would refer to as the apocrypha. This is uh, going we're going to find that this is going to be one of those areas where we are going to differ from uh, Catholic the Catholic Church. Um, this is going to be, and this is kind of one of the reasons that it's foundational to this to this study, and one of the reasons that we've started kind of in this area, because what you believe is Scripture is going to determine how you view Scripture, right? Like, so, so one of some, and and like one of the questions that that for me when I think about when I think about Scripture and I think about what books belong in the Bible, like one of the questions that I ask myself is. Who determined that? 
right? Like who determined what got to be in the Bible? What were the things that like what was the checklist that that was that that went on through there? Like who determines what is the word of God? And I want to pose that question to you now. Who determines what the word of God is? God does. <laughs> no, this is no right. But 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 at the core, and this is this is I think this is a fundamental a fundamental thing, and I love I love the answer. Like at the core, who determines what God's word is? God does. Then what is our responsibility? If God if if God determines what his word is and and this is the reality it's not us right like I don't get to look at I don't get to look at a book and it not be God's word and declare it God's word the church does not get to look at a writing and declare it to be God's word God's word is what God's word what God himself says that it is it is our responsibility to determine if we can identify what God's Word is. It's not our responsibility to say this is God's Word and by us saying it, it becoming it. It's our responsibility to identify it properly. So that's the question that we're getting at today. Can we identify properly what is the Word of God. This is an this is an important thing. We find um, in Deuteronomy chapter thirty two, um, <clears throat> verse forty five through forty seven, Moses speaking um, in high regard regarding uh, the the word of God itself, and and this is what he says here. He says, "Take heart, uh, or excuse me, take to heart all the words which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law." For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. So specifically here, I, I, I like the, the phrase that he has speaking of God's word. Specifically here, the law saying, For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Do we get the importance, the significance of us properly identifying what is God's Word? It's our very life, Moses would say here. So the precise determination of the extent of the canon of Scripture <clears throat> is therefore of the utmost importance... If we are to trust and obey God absolutely, we must have a collection of words that we are certain are God's own words to us. So as we kind of go through this today, one of the things that I want that I want us to again, I want you to start formulating questions. So don't just take what I'm saying today as brute fact, right? Like ask questions or formulate the questions and next week we'll hopefully have uh, time that you can start kind of voicing these questions out and then we can start answering them. But I'm going to give you kind of, I'm going to kind of lay out what would be kind of the traditional view, uh, the traditional Protestant view of the canon of Scripture and how it's kind of developed and where it comes from. We're going to look at a couple of different things, specifically looking at um, Old Testament first and then moving into the New Testament 
Um, next week, as it, as it takes kind of an apologetic lean, I actually, uh, my own self, when I'm building up for myself and my own mind justification for what Scripture should be, I, I, I actually start with the apologetic lane. Like I, and I'll go ahead and give you kind of where I start from and how I kind of justify it's going to get there next week, is um, that if Christ is raised from the dead, then Christ has something significant to say to the world, right? So that's kind of the primary grounding truth for me, that if he was raised from the dead, and I think historically that's... That, that's bedrock, right? That's what was preached by the early church resurrection. So if he was raised from the dead, he had something significant to say. I believe that we can lay a good groundwork for the New Testament and the trustworthiness of the New Testament. And then from the trustworthiness of the New Testament, we find quotations from Old Testament texts. Um, the large majority, I would say, of the Old Testament we find the books being quoted by New Testament authors. So from there we can build up an Old Testament view. Um, and then we can, we can very quickly, I believe, come to, a, come to uh, a point that if Christ is raised, if he, in fact, was raised from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. From there, what he quotes, he quotes as, as Scripture um, and if we can lay that front, that groundwork, I think that we can have that we can make an argument that is that would be difficult uh, to to tear down. But kind of a traditional approach to this um, would be looking at Scripture itself and then drawing out from Scripture what Scripture says of itself. So so with that question to you all, what what is the first? What would what would you imagine is the first written word? of God that we know of or that we can uh, determine as, as having existed from Scripture itself. Ten Commandments. Very good. Y'all are, y'all are awake this morning. Like, that's good. So the Ten Commandments being the first and earliest collection of, <clears throat> of the writings of the Word of God, the Ten Commandments thus form the beginning of biblical canon. God Himself wrote on two tablets of stone the words, which he commanded his people. Um, and this is in Exodus 31.18, if you want to flip there. And he gave to Moses when he had made an end of speaking uh, with him upon Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Then again in chapter 32, verse 16, uh, we read this. And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God graven on tablets. <clears throat> you also find that. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, chapter 10. Um, the tablets were deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. You can find that in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 5. And this was the uh, kind of the, the, the first and earliest um, accounted writing of God's words um, given to man. Moses continues this. So, so kind of if we start with the Ten Commandments and then start building forward, we have the Ten Commandments given as the law to the people of Israel. We find Moses continuing this process of writing. <clears throat> Moses himself wrote additional uh, words that he also deposited um, beside the Ark of the Covenant. You can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 26. Um, the immediate reference there is m- more than likely to the book of Deuteronomy itself, but there are, are other references throughout 
the books that are attributed to Moses, the first four books of the Old Testament, um, which would kind of um, back up this idea that this process of writing God's Word continued on. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Um, Exodus chapter 17, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 24, verse 4. Um, Exodus 34:27. This is just, if you want to go back afterwards, listen to the podcast, you can go back through each of these. Numbers 33, uh, Numbers chapter 33, verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 31, or chapter, yeah, chapter 31, 22 through 26. Um, I want, would somebody, um, pull out, uh, and flip to Deuteronomy chapter 31, um, verses 22 through 26, um, and read that for me. Deuteronomy chapter 31. This is going to kind of bridge. So what I want us to see is kind of the pattern that we find throughout the Old Testament, right? Like, why, because ultimately the question that we should be asking is why the books that we have? Like, what is the, what is the historical and biblical precedent that's, that's laid out if we start with the Ten Commandments and then from the Ten Commandments, Moses was given those tablets to give to the people. Moses was commissioned to write more. Then what I want us to ask is, how did that, from that point, from Moses on, what was understood by Israel? Because we're kind of the... Like the church blossomed from this this chosen people of Israel. So what did Israel like when they were saying this is the the word of God? What were they using to determine what was in their canon? Right. So Ten Commandments, Moses writing. Does, has somebody flipped to Deuteronomy chapter thirty-one? Dustin, will you read thirty-one? Um, read verse twenty-two through twenty-six. So I wanted to look at this specific one because what I think we see in this passage of text is I think that we see the the, the this kind of chain passing on this this lineage um, of the writing of the text passing on here. So we see Moses writing. This is being kept by the people of God. We also see God in this particular passage of text here commissioning Joshua himself. So uh, verse 23 of chapter 31 of Deuteronomy specifically is where God commissions Joshua. And, and I would say there's kind of this, this handing off of, of what Moses had been doing and some of that responsibility is now going to fall on Joshua. So we see Moses, or we see God here speaking in verse 23 uh, to Joshua saying, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. That's Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 23. So after the death of Moses, Joshua continues writing, right? So Joshua adds to the collection of the written words of God. We find we find evidence for this in the book of Joshua at the end of the book of 
uh, or at the end of chapter uh, 24, specifically in verse 26, we find this to be said. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. So Joshua, so we've got the Ten Commandments, we've got Moses, continuing on from Moses, we have Joshua. Um, from Joshua we find, <coughs> We find that there's, that prophets come on the scene, and there are several here. I'm not going to go over all of them. I'll go over maybe three specific examples. So we find, um, one of the things that I want us to, to be getting out of this as well, and I mentioned this, I mentioned this last week, and it's, it, it's worth, um, kind of repeating this, is that we find Scripture being written. Now, this is, as we look at Scripture itself in the Old Testament, as we examine the New Testament, we find that Scripture is written around major events in redemptive history, right? Does that, does, when I, when I use that phrase, do y'all get what I mean by that? Like what a significant event in in redemptive history is like when the Israelites kind of Yes. Yeah, so like, so we get these, and and we see, like, if you look at Scripture itself, if you look at the book, you don't find the history of all of mankind, right? Like, you find a, a specific history, right? Like Dustin, Dustin said this, like, all of Scripture is pointing to who? To Christ Himself. So Scripture, and Christ says this in the New Testament, that the Old Testament was speaking about Him. Right? So like so all of Scripture points to Christ. And so Christ is our Redeemer. He his life, death, resurrection, the most significant event in human history, the most significant event in redemptive history. So we find Scripture pointing before the cross, towards the cross. We find Scripture after pointing to the cross and the hope of Christ's return. So this is major redemptive history. So when we look at Scripture itself, we find the evidence is there within the pages of the book that the book is speaking to a specific event or moving towards a specific event. Right? So this is what I mean whenever I say that Scripture revolves around redemptive history. That as God has worked to redeem mankind, so too has He written to speak of the work that He was doing. Make sense? We follow there? So, so, that, so, that, so it makes sense then why the Ten Commandments would be important. Right? It makes sense then why Moses would write because these are significant events in redemptive history that God would want to record for His people, right? So, so too, as the reins kind of get handed from Moses to Joshua, would we expect then Joshua to have something to say about the events from God Himself to us? And we do. That's what we find in the book of Joshua. And that's what Joshua twenty-four twenty-six kind of tells us there. Now as well, as the people of Israel are, are formed, as they are uh, led through the Exodus, as they're established, um, 
as a as a people, as a nation. Um, there's lots of ebbs and flows in in the history of of the people of Israel, and throughout this time, we find kings, we find prophets. So it's the prophets and the people of Israel themselves, and this is what we're gonna. This is kind of where we're going. The people of Israel themselves, the Israelites, the Jews, looked to the prophets then as the source from which. Um, God spoke and from which the written word of God uh, came by their hands. So uh, we see this um, in Samuel, um, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. 1 Chronicles 29.29 The acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer and the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the Chronicles of Gab the seer. That again is 1 Chronicles chapter 29 verse 29. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 2 we see thus says the Lord God of Israel write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, so we see this this thing that began with the Ten Commandments, continued with Moses through Joshua into the prophets, um, and and you can find many accounts to where uh, within the prophets, the prophets are are laying claim to what they are saying being uh, the very word of God, right? That God had kind of commissioned them in the in in writing these particular words. <clears throat> Now, all of this is, is leading us kind of to the point to where, like, what I would say, like, this, some differentiating places between us and the Catholic Church. Like, a lot of this is, is, is leading us in that direction, right? Like, like, why is it there are certain books that they would hold as being, uh, on par with Scripture that we do not? And, and one of the places here that we're gonna kinda, we'll discuss this a little bit next week is, 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 I want us to also ask the question, well, what do the Jews hold? Like, they're not gonna call it Old Testament, right? But like, what do they hold for their canon? What are the books that they view as Scripture? So as we kind of think about that question, we should look and we should ask ourselves, are there any writings that are out there from the Jews? Or what's the, like, if we were to just go and ask the Jews, uh, a Jew today, like, what do you view as Scripture? Like, what are they going to say? Are they going to include the Apocrypha? Are they going to exclude it? And we can we can actually see um, there's some there's some pretty good evidence for the exclusion of the Apocrypha um, that we find in extra biblical accounts. But um, so just kind of to think about this, if if what we're saying is that is that Scripture is written around key historical events and redemptive history, then we would expect in times of silence or in times where there were no significant events that were not necessarily looking for Scripture to be written in those times, right? So like, so, so consider this. Um, the content of the Old Testament canon continued, right? Like continued through the prophets until the time of, the, uh, until the time of its end in writing. Now, if we date the book of Haggai <clears throat> to 520 B.C., Zechariah to around about the same time, with maybe a little bit of extra material added 
uh, at a different time. If we were to date the book of Malachi around 435 B.C., then we have an idea of the approximate dates of the last Old Testament prophets. Um, roughly co- coinciding with this period are the last books of the Old Testament history, which is Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Um, Ezra uh, went to Jerusalem about 450 B.C. Nehemiah was in Jerusalem um, in around 445 to 433 B.C. Esther was written sometime after the death of Xerxes I in probably 465 B.C. Uh, And uh, the date and the date during the reign of Artaxerxes, which was Artaxerxes I, which is 464 to 423 B.C., um, is is probable. Um, this would indicate that after around 435 B.C., right, that there were no further additions to the Old Testament canon. So if, we, if we're basing our idea that, that when the prophets ceased, so too did the Word of God itself cease, this is where we find the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha lives in that time period where the prophets were no more, right? And now this is actually something that's supported by uh, Jewish history itself. So if we turn to Jewish literature outside of the Old Testament, we see that the belief that the divinely authoritative words from God had ceased and this is clearly attested in uh, several places um, outside of scripture itself so first maccabees which is one of the uh, books of the apocrypha uh, this was written about 100 bc so just keep in mind that 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 BC your numbers are decreasing so you're getting closer to the time of Christ as the number gets smaller so if we said that the that the writings of the Old Testament ended sometime in the 400s then we would anticipate anything less than 400 would not be in the canon of scripture follow do you follow? So 1 Maccabees was written approximately 100 BC so it falls in that time right so this would be a, this Yes, yeah, so it would. Be, we would put that. We would place that in the apocrypha. We would say that there's value there from a historic standpoint, right? But it's not scripture. Do we understand the difference there? That when, like, scripture has the right to tell you how to live, history does not. You don't look to your social studies book. You don't look to your history book for uh, for commands on how to live. Yes. Yes. So now the question is, how do we know that Maccabees is not part of the canon or shouldn't be part of the canon of Scripture? How do, how do we know? Well, there's a couple of things that would, that would lead you there. One being there's some historical inaccuracies that are present in the book of Maccabees. So, so if you want to include that, then you have to say, well, God's Word can be faulty, right? And we don't, we don't believe... We don't believe that. Uh, another good reason is that the book of Maccabees itself doesn't make that claim. Okay, So if you were to go to the book of Maccabees and uh, find you one that's got good chapter divisions. Uh, so First Maccabees uh, chapter 4 verse 45 and 46 says this. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. So they apparently knew of no one who could speak with the authority of God as the Old Testament prophets had done. Uh, the memory of an authoritative 
uh, prophet among the people was one that belonged in the distant past for them. We're talking hundreds of years here. For the author could speak in 1 Maccabees 9.27, and then you could also find a reference in 14.41 to this idea. Um, Maccabees says this, Such had not been since the time of the prophet ceased to appear, um, uh, since the time that the prophet ceased to appear, to appear among them. So Maccabees itself does not lay claim to be Scripture, but but actually gives testimony to what the Jews were thinking during the day, during that the day of its writing, and that was that the prophets had ceased themselves to speak. There were no prophets in the days of. Uh, in the days that the that the apocrypha were written, so Josephus, who is uh, kind of contemporary to the time of Christ himself, um, he's a he was a Jewish historian. He says he says this. Um, so this is someone this is someone in contemporary time with Christ, right? So like uh, Josephus was born around thirty seven thirty eight A D. Uh, so this is early church time. Right, so he would have been he would have been seeing as he was an adult he would have been seeing the early church. Right, this is kind of the time period that he lived in. So if you're asking yourself, this is a Jewish historian, a, a well-respected Jewish historian, and if you were to ask yourself, what did he say or what did he think about the the period of time that we would classify the the works of the apocrypha to fall in this is something that he says from Artaxerxes remember that from the previous comment to our own times a complete history has been written right so this is this is Josephus saying this from Artaxerxes to our own time he's speaking of his time this would be the time of the early church uh, a complete history has been written but has not been deemed worthy of equal equal credit with earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets so this is a Jew in the era of the early church speaking from the point of view of the Jews towards the records which they held and he himself says that the histories these would be like the Maccabees and and other books that we would find in the Apocrypha he himself says that the way that the Jews were thinking about it in his day is that these writings were not deemed worthy of equal credit with earlier records that's the records of the prophets because this is what he says because the failure of the exact succession of the prophets so when the Jews were thinking about what scripture was they were saying that scripture came from the prophets so if there were no prophets then there were no scripture right y'all follow y'all follow along with that yeah Yes. There were no prophets. And, were no and the prophets. Jews said that there were no prophets. Right. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. So, um well we Yeah, so 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 you you find that you find that between the gap in time that uh-huh. of like the writing of Malachi. You're not going to necessarily find like an explicit like X number of years, but what you find is you find many. Like if you read the New Testament, they're looking for a Messiah. 
right? Like there's the, there's a, there's a there's a look towards the Messiah. Now they have a very different view of the Messiah than the Messiah that came, right? Which is why many of the Jews m- missed the Messiah. But they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to come, earthly king past one, right? Like, like he's going to come on the scene and all the oppressors are going to be thrown off. Like this is kind of the Messiah they're looking for. So they miss him, but they're looking for a Messiah and they constantly, like they refer to him as the prophet, right? Like like they're, they're hungry for the next step and they're clearly... They've ident- they, like they identify the the lines of the prophets, and they they identify as well the time when the prophets were not speaking. Right, so that's what we find. Like we find references to the Jewish people themselves recognizing where the word of God came from, and recognizing that God had gone silent. And then we draw that that time period from the, the last time that they recognized this is a prophet, right? This is a biblical prophet. We identify this man as a, as a biblical prophet. Like his works, his deeds identified him as such. And he was the last. We don't know of one after. There was none after. So this is the time of silence, right? From the, from the writing of Malachi um, until the New Testament authors began writing again. Um, I had a question. Um, I know a little bit about the prophet. Mm-hmm. There was supposed to be a story about um, Elijah and Elisha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, so like, there's, there's like the, there's, and it's, so we have Ecclesiastes. Which is Solomon's writing, and then there's Ecclesiastica. Well, help me with the name. I think it's Ecclesiasticus or something that's in the Apocrypha. So, like these are these are not these are not, nor were they ever held as being on par. So, like we'll get like Ecclesiastes and the Jews holding in high regard Ecclesiastes, but not these others. And what they would do is they would, it was the same kind of thing as what Josephus is saying here. Like, Josephus is not saying of the Apocrypha, dump it. What he's saying of the Apocrypha is that it's not on the same level as Scripture, right? Like, he's making a differentiation. Like, here's the thing, like, you, you've all gone to school and you've read out of textbooks. <clears throat> These are good things, Right? These are good things, but your textbook is not Scripture, right? Like, like even books that you use to help you learn about Scripture are not Scripture. And there's a danger when we elevate them there, right? Do y'all, get, do y'all understand that? Because any errors, any places that they might diverge from the truth of what Scripture says, there's a, there's a, there's a possibility that that becomes an error in our own in our own thinking, in our own theology, in our own doctrines, right? And that's what bubbles up from that, okay? That's what bubbles up. If you have any falsehood, that falsehood in time will manifest itself, right? And, and ultimately, I think like that the Catholic Church, um, in their response to the Reformation... That was when they started. That was when they started like legitimizing in a big way um, the apocrypha. That's when it. That's like it was only in response to the Protestant Reformation that the Catholic Church hammered out what was Scripture. And essentially, in that, what the Catholic Church 
what the Catholic Church said that's different than what, what we say, and we'll get into this next week when we start talking more of the history, is the Catholic Church became the determiner of what God said. Right? And they, weren't, they, they got out of the business of identifying it and got into the business of declaring it. Right? We, we hope that we properly identify. And I think that we can make exceptionally good arguments that we've identified properly what the Word of God is. But we do not declare the Word of God. God declares the Word of God. We identify it. Right? Does that make sense? Um, so now that's, that's kind of Old Testament. We've kind of covered the Old Testament there. Um, we've got 16 or so minutes to kind of hammer out some New Testament. And there's going to be some bridges that we're going to, that we're going to kind of start stepping, stepping across in the, in the early part of this. One thing that I want us to get is that the New Testament confirms the Old Testament. So in the New Testament, um, nor in any uh, extra-biblical um, historic work of the time do we have any recorded dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of what the canon of Scripture was for them. Okay, I want to say that. I want to say that again. So, in the day of Jesus, Scripture does not record, nor does any trustworthy historical record of the time record any disputes between what Jesus said was the Word of God and what the Jews said was the Word of God. Now, I want to be careful there. Interpretation of it differed dramatically, right? Jesus claimed, this speaks about me, and they said, no way, man. Right? But nowhere did he quote from Isaiah and then say, that's not what Isaiah said. Right? That's not the words in the book. Right? So when Jesus and them were having, when they were having disputes over Scripture, they weren't having disputes over what Scripture was, but they were having disputes over what Scripture said. Right? So Jesus says it speaks about me, and the Jew says, no, it doesn't. But they were both reading from the same text. That's important, right? Yes. So what happens is, and, and we, can, we can, this is kind of a cumulative argument to me. And this is why I start with Jesus. Because if Jesus came back from the dead, that's historically relevant in a way that no one else's life is historically relevant. Because you die and stay dead. There's something special about this man if he died and came back to life. Right? Especially if he died because he was saying he was God and then came back to life. This is the claim that he made. He claimed that he was God in the flesh. He was murdered on a cross because of this. Multiple times before that, he would say things and they were like, I'm going to hit you with a rock over the head, you crazy guy. Right? Because he was claiming to be God. He's murdered. And he comes back. That's significant. Do we understand the significance of that? Because if he says, I'm God, and you kill him and he stays dead, you can forget what he said. If he says, I'm God, you kill him and he comes back. And then he shows you why what just happened to him was a fulfillment of the text itself. And then a movement, the church sprung up from that and continues on to today, then there's something significant in what he said. So what we say then is that if they had no dispute over what the text was, then any place where Jesus is quoting Scripture, we can be certain 
that the Jews held that as Scripture as well. And, and like I say, a, a good portion of the Old Testament, I want to say that maybe like eight, nine books, some of the, some of the smaller books are excluded from things that the New Testament makes direct quotes from. So much of the Old Testament, like many books, all from, like I say, a ten or less of the Old Testament books would be excluded from this. And most of them are the small ones. So all the big books, the New Testament authors quote. Right? So if Jesus came back from the dead, and Jesus was quoting from these books, then we can be confident that these books should be included. And then we'll have discussion about the rest, right? So, like, that's, that's one of the things that we, need to, that we need to get kind of early on, is that the Jews and Jesus... Jesus quoted 10? Oh, no, no, no. He, like, the New Testament authors themselves... Like, so, like, I'm saying that Jesus is, the, is kind of the, the bedrock, right? So, if you wanted to start, you would say, well, what did Jesus quote from? And I can be absolutely certain, because the, the guy's supernatural... Right now, if he passed on any authority to other men, I would think that I could trust that as well. So what we find is the New Testament continues this idea of the prophets, except now the prophets are the disciples or the apostles. Right. So like that's kind of the the handoff that we that we find there. So according to according to one count, um, as many as uh, two hundred and and ninety five times we find the Old Testament. Um, quoted in the New Testament, um, that's probably uh, like a more conservative number. There's probably even a higher number than that if you look at just like allusions to text and not direct quotes. Um, so now we find in the New Testament this this kind of the line of the prophets becomes kind of the 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 line of the apostles or, or apostolic authority. So um, the development of the New Testament canon begins with the writing of the apostles. It should be remembered that the writing of Scripture primarily occurs in connection with God's great acts in redemptive history. Uh, Old Testament rec- um, the Old Testament records and interprets for us uh, the calling of Abraham, the lives of his descendants, the exodus from Egypt, uh, and the wilderness wanderings, the establishment of God's people in the land of Canaan, the establishment of the monarchy, uh, the exile, the return from captivity. Each of these great acts of God in history is interpreted is interpreted for us in God's own words in Scripture. The Old Testament closes with the expectation of the Messiah to come. You can find this expectation in Malachi chapter one or chapter three, uh, verses one through four. Also in chapter four, verses one through six. Uh, the next stage in redemptive history uh, is clearly in the point of view of the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah. And it is not surprising that there were no further scriptures being written until the next great event that's the the work of Christ in redemptive history had occurred uh, Jesus we find this in John chapter <clears throat> John chapter 14 verse 26 Jesus promised um, that he was that, that the the apostles would be empowered um, and, and John 14:26 it says this but the counselor the holy spirit whom the Father will send me, who will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Um, those who have the office of the, the apostle in the early church are seen to claim 
an authority equal to that of the Old Testament prophets. Um, we can see this in Second Peter chapter three verse two, um, where Peter encourages his readers to remember this: the command of the Lord and Savior through. And he, this is like the quotation: the commandment of your Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter here elevating the words of the apostles to that of like the prophets of old to to having the authority to pen the text itself. Um, we also find in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, um, Peter. not only does Peter show an awareness of the existence of Paul's writings, but he is also clearly willing to classify all of his writings or all of his epistles with the other scriptures. Peter says, this is Second uh, Peter uh, 3, um, 15 through... 16. Uh, Peter says, So also our beloved brother Paul, he's speaking about Paul's writings, right? So also our beloved brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter here, writing of Paul, writing of the writings of Paul, elevates Paul's writings to that of Scripture. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, um, verses 15 and 16. Um, so now in Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is one of those letters to which Peter could be referring here. Paul does, uh, Paul does another. So how do we get, the question is, is not all of the New Testament was written by apostles. There are books that we include in the New Testament canon that were not directly penned by the apostles themselves. So how would these types of things come in? Like the book of Luke, the book of Acts. Like this would be one. He was not an apostle. Um, so Paul, this is, this is pretty cool here. Follow along. First, First Timothy chapter 5 verses 17. In 18, Paul says this, uh, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scriptures say, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wage. Now here's the cool thing. The first quotation that Paul makes here of Scripture can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 14. But the second quotation that he makes to Scripture... This quotation where he says the laborer um, deserves his wage is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. It does, however, an exact quotation in the Greek can be found in Luke chapter 10 verse 7. So here we have Paul quoting a portion of Luke's gospel calling it scripture. Do you all see how significant that is? So Peter... Like, right-hand man of Jesus saying Paul's writings are Scripture. So all of Paul's writings here. And now we find Paul, whose writings are Scripture on par with Scripture, quoting as Scripture from the book of Luke. So what we find here is that in the New Testament, there's, there's apparently this idea of apostolic authority, like the apostles had the authority to write the Word of God and confirm for others what the Word of God was as God was working again in uh, redemptive history. Uh, so if we accept the argument 
The arguments for traditional views of of authorship of the New Testament writings, uh, then we have most of the New Testament in the canon because of the direct authorship of the apostles. Um, This would exclude Matthew, John, Romans, uh, Philemon, um, or no, this would include, excuse me, Matthew, John, Romans, uh, Philemon, uh, like all of Paul's epistles, James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Revelation. This leaves five books, only five books, of which Paul himself quoted from one. Uh, but these five books would be Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, Jude, which were not written by the apostles. The details of the historic process by which these books came to be counted as part of Scripture by the early church are scarce, but Mark, Luke, and Acts were commonly acknowledged uh, very early, probably because of the close association of Mark with the Apostle Peter, again, the idea of apostolic authority, and of Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, with the Apostle Paul, and Paul actually quoting as Scripture um, from Luke's book. Similarly, Jude um, was apparently accepted by virtue of the author's connection with James, and the fact that he was the brother of Jesus. Um, so kind of in summary here, and we'll get to some, we're, we're going to cover this again just from a different angle next week, um, but kind of to summarize what we've looked at today, it should be remembered that the writing of Scripture primarily occurs in connection with God's great acts in redemptive history. So when we're kind of making a checklist of, of how should we... How should we view it? Like we should view Scripture as coming in line with these great works of redemptive history. Now, this should give us a big one for, for after the age of the apostles. We should not anticipate more writings, right? So any writing that was written after the age of the apostles or after the time that the apostles could do like what Paul did in quoting Luke, like we should not be looking for Scripture there. Right? So if there's a book that, that came along 500 years, like the first occurrence of it, 500 years after Christ, after the apostles, then we should not be including it in our text because it could not fall in line with what, we've, what we deem as being kind of the credible, um, historically it seems in line, God working in redemptive history. Why? Because God's work in redemptive history climaxed at the cross and the beginning of the church. So we should, we should consider that we have all we need in that. So we should not be anticipating more writings. Where the Jews were anticipating the coming Messiah, the Messiah has come. Right? Now we're in the age of the church. Right? The text that we have, we have. So that's, that's one thing is that we should understand that, that Scripture tends to come along with great acts in redemptive history. The, the climax of redemptive history is the work of Christ, the victory of Christ in the resurrection. Uh, for a book to belong in the canon, it is absolutely necessary that the book have divine authorship. If the words of the book are... Uh, God's word, and if the early church, under the direction of the apostles, preserved the book as part of Scripture, then it, then the book belongs in the canon. Uh, should we expect more writings to be added? Uh, the opening sentence of Hebrews puts this question in proper historical perspective. Um, that perspective of the history of redemption, Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two says, in many and various ways. God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, 
He appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. That quotation comes from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. 